tracking the amazing growth of the first century church to challenge and inspire the 21st century church. This is Unstoppable Church, Then and Now, recorded on location in Israel, Cyprus, Turkey, Greece, Malta and Italy. Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont is in conversation for the next 30 minutes with David Taverner. In our last conversation, Mike, we were hearing about some of the amazing things that were starting to happen um, for those believers, some miraculous healings and so on, yeah? Yes. Uh, but but is, the, is the sort of tone changing somewhat? <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. From Acts chapter 4, it is definitely going to get, well, let's put it this way, mixed. Because just as there were people who loved the early Christians for what they did and what they brought and how they cared for people, there were some who opposed them and who hated them for what they did. And it's interesting, it's always people with vested interests. It's either religious vested interests, so either the Sanhedrin, which was the governing body of Judaism at that time, or the Sadducees, the ruling priestly class who looked after the temple, who felt their power being pushed. Or sometimes it will be um, economic interests that the gospel will challenge, we'll see later in Acts. So. The gospel is very attractive to those who recognize their need, and we've seen that happening already. But there will be some who will oppose it, not necessarily because they believed it to be untrue, but because it threatened what they believed and what they stood for. Well, let's hear how Luke records that opposition. Well, I think the best thing we can do is actually read a good chunk of Luke chapter 4 and see what happened after the story that we looked at in the previous episode of the man who was healed uh, in the temple so close to where we are at the moment. So chapter 4, Luke says this, The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Well, the next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem, and asked the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family, they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. 
But since they could see that the man who'd been healed standing there with them, there was nothing that they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they've done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help but speak of what we've seen and heard. And after further threats, they let them go. They couldn't decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So it was the religious bigwigs that were not happy, but um, who were these religious bigwigs? What, what authority did they have? Well, the people in question here, there are two parties. One is the Sanhedrin. Now, Sanhedrin in, in Greek is zonedrion, which is a word meaning the group sitting together. And this is the Jewish elders, the Jewish leaders who sat together as uh, Israel's sort of supreme court, supreme deciding body. Uh, it met every day uh, here in Jerusalem, except Sabbath, of course. And it met uh, just up above from where we are. We've come back to the Kotel, that great Western Wall, uh, the retaining wall of the temple. And they, they had a meeting hall up on the temple platform there that they used to meet in. And that's why we've come back to this spot. Um, the Sanhedrin went all the way back to the 70 elders that God had given to Moses when uh, he was struggling with deciding how to resolve the cases that the Israelites were bringing to him during their years in the wilderness. And they uh, traced their roots according to the Talmud, which is a compilation of ancient Jewish teachings. Uh, the Sanhedrin grew and developed out of that. So it was, it was the supreme deciding authority in, in all matters Jewish here in the state of Israel. The others that are mentioned, the Sadducees, the Sadducees were the priestly ruling class. They were the elite. And of course, they had vested interests in anything that happened up there, just above that wall on the temple platform, because they felt the temple was theirs. What are you doing in our precinct? This is where we control and determine what happens. And what was even worse, these Christians were preaching about Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. And the big difference between Sadducees and Pharisees, apart from the Sadducees being the people who control the temple, uh, was the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection because they based their belief on simply the five books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. And since those first five books don't mention resurrection, the Sadducee group didn't believe in it. So there's like a double thing going on there. One, who gave you a permit to do anything in our space up here? And two, what are you doing preaching about Jesus and resurrection when we don't believe in that? So quite an intimidating council to be brought before. Oh, uh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, imagine how it must have been. These guys are not 
you know, trained rabbis. They're not used to appearing before people. Most of them uh, have just lived a quiet life up in Galilee. Many of them fishermen going out each day fishing, selling their catch at the market. Matthew, a former tax collector, would have had to connect with Rome from time to time. He perhaps would have been a bit less scared of authorities like that. But it must have seemed incredibly intimidating to these ordinary people. In fact, what are dismissed by uh, these ordinary, unschooled men, they dismissed them as that. And what they meant by that, unschooled men, meant people who had not been to rabbinic training school like we have. How dare these people come up here teaching? They have not been to theological college for so many years, like we have, we might put it today. They have had no training whatsoever. How dare they come up here? So a mixture of power-based words like that, being put down, being reminded that you're a nobody, would have seemed, I think, incredibly um, demeaning and incredibly threatening and overwhelming, first of all. But surprising that they didn't really come to any conclusion. Well, it was pretty hard for them to come to a conclusion, wasn't it? Because what they were faced with was an incontrovertible miracle. You know, that's what I love about miracles still today. If you see one before your eyes, I feel like saying, so explain that one away. Um, what they knew and what they knew everyone in the city of Jerusalem knew was that this man, this cripple who'd lain there for all those years at the beautiful gate up on the temple platform, had unmistakably been healed. He'd lain there for years. He was a well-known beggar. You know, everybody would have known him and seen him. He'd got a prime begging spot there at the what was one of the preferred entrance gates to the temple courtyards. Everybody knew what he used to be for decades. And now everybody knew, they could see with their own eyes, that he was walking, that he had been healed. So, you know, they have a problem. They've got a problem because... They don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe in his power to do miracles. And yet, the man is healed. What do we do with that? And so, yeah, they end up with this, well, we don't really know what to say, but run along now and, 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 and don't come up here teaching about Jesus anymore is the most that they can come up with. Of course, as we read on in the book of Acts, we'll find that that sort of opposition will come in very, very uh, different wise. At times it will come with the Christians being beaten up. At times it will come with them being thrown in jail. At times it will come with martyrdom. You know, we won't have to turn too many pages before we meet the first martyr of the church, Stephen, who ended up having to give his life for being faithful to Jesus. So opposition will come in many ways. Here, you know, fairly subtle, perhaps low-key threat. Sometimes it will come you know, more overtly than that. I think one of the challenges for many Christians today is, is often the sort of subtle threat, the implied threat of what might happen to you and your job or your situation if you carry on saying what you are saying because they can't sack you, but they can make life very difficult for you. And I think that's what the religious authorities were saying here. You stop all this talking about Jesus, because it, you notice it said after further threats, they let them go. But, you know, what could they do? They'd not broken any laws. All they had done was pray in the name of the living God and heal a man. They talked about Jesus. Okay, they didn't like that. But, but it was words at the end of the day. And very often today, it's words, it's threat, it's insinuation that opposition comes 
against Christians today. And, and Peter clearly doesn't have a sort of defence lawyer. In fact, his defence is that uh, he described the incident as a sort of act of kindness. I love that. You know, I think here was a real word of wisdom from the Holy Spirit. Jesus had once said, you know, when, when you put on the spot, when you're questioned, don't panic, don't start planning what you're going to say when the time comes. The Holy Spirit will give you the words that you need. And I think the Holy Spirit must have whispered this into Peter's heart because, you know, it says, Peter, filled with the Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown in this cripple, and are asked how he was healed, and they go on. And how to describe that as an act of kindness? What a lovely way, because what they're really saying is, oh, so sorry, you religious leaders are against kindness, are you? He doesn't accuse them of it, he just says, are you, are you accusing me on the basis that I did an act of kindness? And, uh, you know, I can't help but think, every time I come to that phrase, the act of kindness, are we as Christians, first of all, known today for our acts of kindness. Sadly, very often what we're known for is what we're against. You know, what we don't believe in, what we say is wrong, rather than the acts of kindness that we get engaged in, in the world uh, around us. So, you know, like, I think it's a good opportunity to sort of search our own hearts individually. And as a church, are, are we known for acts of kindness? And are we opposed for acts of kindness? Um, yeah, it would be a good, moment to stop and ask ourselves how much kindness is there in what we do in our world today. There's also that reference that says that they recognise that they'd been with Jesus, but I mean, Jesus wasn't with them anymore. No, that's really interesting, isn't it? Now, what's that a reference to? Well, it could be one of two things in context. I mean, it's often spiritualised. It could simply be meaning they recognise that these are men who, although they had not had formal rabbinic training, that clearly they had been with Jesus for the last three years and had picked up an awful lot of his teaching and his lifestyle. So it could be that. Or it could be that there's a little bit more as well, that there was something about how they behaved and how they handled themselves that recognised the spirit of Jesus was still at work. I tend to think it's probably the former because of the lips that it came from, but it's almost like they're prophesying something they don't know and recognise. When, when we will spend time with Jesus, there is undoubtedly a difference that it makes in life. And, and if it doesn't, frankly, then our time with Jesus has been a bit of a sham. So in a sense, they didn't quite know what, what to do with them, but I mean, was that the end of it? Um, well, no, not at all. I mean, one of the things I love is that after this, if we'd gone on in our reading, um, we would have found that the believers go back to their meeting room and have this almighty corporate prayer meeting together. Uh, and all they do is they, they don't go and hide, which I think would have been my instinct, you know, quick, get out of here, run. Uh, they don't respond by hiding, but by praying for even more opportunities uh, to shake things up, you know, get, Lord, consider their threats and not, Lord, consider their threats and protect us. Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly again. So it was not going to be 
the end of the story as far as they were concerned, all they do is they go and pray for more opportunities. And as we go into chapter five, we'll find more of those opportunities and actually we'll find, yes, more opposition. Shall we read a few verses and just see what happens there? Acts 5.12 says that the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. All the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade, just yards from where we are now, up there in the temple. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. And yet, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on their beds on mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Fantastic, praise God. Why? Because Jesus is ascended, as we saw in a previous episode. He's on the throne, he's reigning and ruling. And therefore, because of that also, some will oppose that as we go on to read. Verse 17, Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. Oh my goodness, so it's gone beyond what we've seen before now, David. Not just threats, this is now becoming a bit more serious, isn't it? Christians getting locked up overnight. Hey, but you know what? Jesus is still on the throne. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out and said, not go and hide, but go and stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. You know, how amazing that despite the opposition, they just keep going back again and again and again. Not out of stupidity, uh, not out of obstinacy, out of having gone back to God and having had a renewed filling of his Holy Spirit, re-energized to go and think they are not going to have the last word. We are going back out there preaching. So this unstoppable church, you can oppose it, but you ain't going to stop it. That's the clear message of the book of Acts. I mean, clearly they ruffled a few feathers, but it was now getting really serious. And as you say, something was driving them. But, but, but what exactly was driving them that much? Well, it was this encounter with Jesus that they'd had personally. Of course, for some of them, they'd spent the three years walking with him, living, breathing, talking, eating, um, and had had the privilege of doing that. But of course, for thousands of the others that we've seen referred to who were now becoming followers of Jesus, they hadn't had that privilege and yet something energized and captivated them. They were totally caught up with the message of Jesus, with the promise of forgiveness for what was past and hope for what was future and an invitation to become part of this dynamic, growing, world-changing people who were not going to retreat like those folk down at Camran had done, but who were going to go out there and make an impact on this world and make a difference. So it was their encounter with Jesus. And it was constantly going back and asking the Holy Spirit to fill them again. Um, you know, sometimes we've focused in the history of the church on, have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And I hope people's answer to that is yes. But I also hope their answer is, and again, and again, 
and again and again because that's what we find in Acts, the Holy Spirit coming again and again and again to top up their tank, as it were, to energise them. And it's like they go out and just lift things to another level. And throughout these early chapters, it's just like it keeps stepping up. So in chapter 3, it's, it's opposition and threat. And don't you come back here preaching anymore. In Acts chapter 5, they're locked up overnight and God does the miracle and, uh, and frees them. And we'll look at that story in a, in a later episode. In chapter 6, and just going into 7, it becomes even more intense as one of the seven who was chosen to help with the distribution of food amongst the poor in those days speaks up for Jesus and finds now he will pay the ultimate price, the ultimate opposition by having his life taken from him. He'll be stoned to death and become the church's first martyr. Why? Because he wouldn't stop talking about Jesus and he didn't just preach. I mean, he did miracles. I'm just glancing down here to chapter 6 and verse 8. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, of his, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. So here's religious opposition, again now, not from the bigwigs here at the temple, not from the Sanhedrin, but from people in one of the synagogues in particular in Jerusalem, almost certainly the synagogue that Stephen himself came from. Was it out of jealousy? This guy who they'd known and had grown up among them, uh, doing miracles and wonders. And they began to argue with Stephen, but they couldn't stand up against his wisdom or by the spirit uh, by whom he spoke. And we were to read on in chapter 6, they actually have to trump up false charges against him, saying that they found him preaching and teaching against the law of Moses. And that will ultimately uh, lead to a mob and in being stoned. So the opposition in these early chapters, even from religious quarters, comes in increasing measure. You know, threat, just keep your mouth shut. Thrown in jail overnight, but God releases them. But for Stephen, he pays the ultimate price. God doesn't release him. He pays the price of martyrdom. He still wins. He still wins. He's sitting there in heaven at the right hand of God with Jesus saying, I still won. Because even if we die, we live with Jesus. I was going to ask you maybe the difference between opposition and persecution and how that's relevant for us today. Mm. Well, I think the one can sometimes lead to the other. Uh, I mean, it, it's very unusual for us to experience outright persecution in Europe at the moment, though it has been so far. I would say there is a change in atmosphere. Certainly what has been more the norm in the West in the 20th and 21st centuries is that sort of subtle opposition, that sort of being getting digs at work for your faith, being made fun of. Uh, even being told you won't get promotion uh, if you keep on pushing your Christian ideas in the workplace. It's interesting, there have been increasing numbers coming into the news, and I, I can speak more for the UK more than anywhere else in the world, 
where Christians who've made a stand, even over things like a nurse insisting on the right to wear a cross under her nurse's uniform, being sacked. And thank God for people like the Christian Legal Centre in the UK who've fought on her behalf, Christian lawyers who've given their services free to go to court and fight and say, this person has the right to do that. But I would say that's definitely getting to the level of where you are being persecuted for your faith. Okay, your life's not at stake yet, but your job is. Uh, recently, there was a social worker, trainee social worker, thrown off his course because of a private post he'd put on his personal Facebook page supporting traditional views of marriage. And he'd been told he was unfit to continue to train as a social worker. So increasingly, there are jobs like in medicine, in social work, in teaching, where Christians are being told, you keep your faith private and you don't say anything and don't let your Christian faith affect anything of what you do or how you believe or how you practice your job or you will get sacked. Now, you know, the point's gonna have to come where more and more Christians test that in the courts. Thank God in the courts, Christians have generally been found in favor in our country and certainly in England, precedence in law has a huge amount of sway in future decisions. But I think what happens is opposition just slowly increases and little by little, it can become persecution in increasing measures. Sadly, of course, in some parts of the world, um, in some strongly Muslim countries, in some strongly Hindu countries, in some strongly atheistic countries, being a Christian can still cost you your life today. So back then, I mean, you know, Peter could have thought, oh, I'm a bit worried about what people might think, or I might be misunderstood, or, you know, why bother to uh, try and explain away this amazing miracle? Yeah, he could, but he doesn't, and nor do the others, do they? Um, I love that bit where he says, you know, we cannot stop but speaking of what we've seen and heard. I'm sorry, this is a fire burning in my belly, and you can throw as much cold water over me as you like. It, it can't quench this fire in me. It cannot quench this fire in the church. Church truly is unstoppable. And we're unstoppable not because we're cussed and certainly not because we're stupid, but because we've seen something. We've seen Jesus. We've seen truth. We've seen how different life looks with him. We've seen how different life could look for you if you lived the Jesus way. And we understand at the moment you saying, we hate that. We don't want that. But we can't help but tell you how it would change you and how different things would look if you at least gave Jesus a chance. Because this is a fire that burns within us. And this was a fire that burnt within Peter, within the apostles, within these thousands of people who were getting saved in the early days of the church. And this is what made the church unstoppable. A fire in their belly because they knew Jesus was real. Jesus had forgiven them and Jesus had sent them out to go and make a difference through the words that they spoke and the life that they lived. And when we do that today, the church of Jesus can still be unstoppable. When Peter was before this Sanhedrin, this uh, intimidating atmosphere, shall we say, uh, were they all of one mind against him? Well, it's interesting, there was some division going on and it, it looks like some of them were 
a little bit, hey, you know, let, let's not rush this. We need to wait and see, for example, in, in chapter five in that second opposition story uh, that we talked about is that when Peter answers them and he, he says this powerful thing that we must obey God rather than men. God exalted Jesus to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witness of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But there was a Pharisee named Gamaliel, one of this religious leading group, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people who stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. And then he addressed the men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do. And he goes on to say, do you know, yeah, we, we've experienced this before in our history and sometimes wait and see is the best advice in life. And so he says to them, therefore in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you won't be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God and his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged and ordered them not to speak. Yeah, we'll let them off with just a mild flogging on this occasion. But yeah, I love that. Here's one guy who's clearly stirred. You know, he's, he's not... One of the Christians is not born again, but he has heard enough to say, well, let's just stop and think. Why don't we look at this a little more closely? And you know what? If this is empty and comes to nothing, it will fizzle out. But there might be something in it. Why don't we wait and see? What wise advice? Why don't we wait and see? Still good advice today, of course. And to what extent do his words come true? Well, absolutely, because uh, he said, didn't he, if this is from God, You'll not be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourself fighting against God. You will not be able to stop them. Well, that's exactly what the rest of Acts is about. Throw out these Christians, throw out the church what you like. Throw at it from religious power, from economic power, from political power. Nothing can stop the unstoppable church. Why? Because the fire of Jesus burns in their guts and the Holy Spirit is with them. And when we will go out with that conviction, well, the church in the 21st century can be just as unstoppable today. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner, traveling from Jerusalem to Rome and beyond to track the amazing growth of the first century church and what that means for the unstoppable church of the 21st century. There are more Bible podcasts from Mike and David on the UCB Player app and major podcast platforms. Check out Jesus Then and Now or Bible Books in 30 Minutes. <laughs>